It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. It was one of those weeks I was maybe a little worried that we wouldn't have anything to talk about on the podcast going into the interview, but I was wrong. I'll reference back to that tweet that said, never change in Poll. <laughs> never change. <laughs> Keep pumping out news. Keep giving us headlines. <laughs> That's right. The General Assembly does not have to be in session. News happens every week. Monday we saw happening, and that was... Oral arguments began at the North Carolina Supreme Court around the voter ID case. Can you walk us through that, Sky? So when you think voter ID, you're thinking that folks are at the Supreme Court arguing about the constitutionality of voter ID. That is not the case here. And in this particular argument, they are arguing, the two parties are arguing who should be representing the state. And the attorney general's office is arguing, hey, we're doing a good job. We're winning these cases. We should continue representing the state. Are you saying we're not representing the state well? And the interveners, the legislative defendants, are saying that they want their folks to be more involved in the case. And why would they want their folks to be more involved in the case, you might ask? That is kind of takes you back to that state board of elections matter where the plaintiffs and defendants settled and the legislators weren't informed about it. This way they would have to be informed and both Senator Berger and Speaker Tim Moore, they would be informed to be able to sign off on any sort of agreement that they came to. So basically they're afraid that Attorney General Stein is going to make a side deal on them. Yeah, it it would give them that option to approve or deny those potential settlements. And that's based on the law that they passed this past session. Okay, so that's coming to fruition here. Governor Cooper did sign that into law, so that is the law of the land. Collusive settlements, it was called. Yeah, but I think it was included in the budget. So oral arguments started on Monday. They have concluded. The, The Supreme Court hearings are very short, right? Very short. Also on Monday, we had a major development as it pertains to the ongoing, decades-old Leandro lawsuit in which the state of North Carolina's educational system was found to be unconstitutional. It's been under a lower court kind of overseeing the implementation and then a curveball this week. Yeah, on Monday night, Chief Justice Paul Newby issued a designation order and that designated a new judge in the superior court for the case. So Judge Lee is the judge that ordered that there would be that $1.7 billion plan to remediate for Leandro. And now we have a new judge and that is Judge Michael Robinson. All right. So Judge Lee, Democrat, Judge Robinson, Republican, Chief Justice Paul Newby, Republican. I have to admit something here, Scott. I am a little confused as to how we got here. Do what you do so well. Explain it to me and our listeners in a way we can understand this. So we'll back up to November. That's when Judge Lee ordered that there would be a $1.7 billion spending plan. And there's some arguments about whether or not he can order 
funds to be dispersed because that is the General Assembly's job. Mm -hmm. So they appealed that. And there was a bypass petition. So you're going to go from Superior Court to the Court of Appeals to the Supreme Court. So that was at the Superior Court level. And a bypass petition says, let's get rid of the Court of Appeals. Let's go straight to the Supreme Court because this is a constitutional challenge. So the petitioners to bypass the Court of Appeals are who? The Attorney General's Office and the plaintiffs to go straight to the Supreme Court. The legislature wanted to stop at the Court of Appeals. So basically, let me get, see if I get this right. The Attorney General, Josh Stein, Democrat, the plaintiffs who are bringing this case about Leandro, they want to go to the Supreme Court, I would suspect, because it's democratically controlled. That's right. So you might think, okay, the logical next step is the Court of Appeals. Mm -hmm. And in considering a bypass petition, there's a couple of things. One, it has to be a constitutional issue to go straight to the Supreme Court. This is clearly a constitutional issue. Number two is you're considering the time it's going to take you to get to the Supreme Court. So if they stop at the Court of Appeals, controlled by Republicans, whoever loses there, probably the plaintiffs, will lose there, they will appeal, and it'll go to the Supreme Court anyway. So you could say, oh, it seems more efficient to go to the Supreme Court. But the reason that the legislature would want to stop at the Court of Appeals is because of that time it would take to get a hearing at the Court of Appeals, appeal that case, and get to the Supreme Court. By the time there would be oral arguments at the Supreme Court in that timeline, it would probably be a Republican-controlled Supreme Court after the election. Mm-hmm. Rather, which is six months away. Right, yeah. rather than right now, which is controlled by Democrats. Wow. So there was another order made on Monday as well, right? Yeah, this actually came out before the designation order. The Supreme Court said, one, we'll, we'll take the bypass petition, grant that. We're going to hear your case here at the Supreme Court. So they granted that bypass petition. But they said, in the meantime, in the next 30 days, we're going to send this back down to the Superior Court to Judge Lee at the time. And we want you to review your $1.7 billion spending plan in light of the fact that we have a state budget and kind of decide whether or not you're going to change your plan based on the state budget. Because, again, he had issued that in November before the state budget was set. Okay. As this is being reviewed by then Judge Lee, we now have a new judge that's going to make this comparison to the state budget? That's right. Okay. And in the meantime, there's all this politics being played around, why did you switch judges? A lot of comparisons Democrats are making to changing the umpire. But this is within Justice Newby's power as the chief justice, right? He can make these assignments. Yep. We'll continue to watch it. Yeah, that will be back at the Supreme Court by late April. Thank you for that explainer. I'm sure I'll have more questions. If you got questions for Sky about the convoluted judicial process. I am not an expert. uh, But you're better than I am. That's for sure. So while the beginning of the week was all about the courts, Wednesday, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson ends up in the news with really bombshell revelation about a post he made 10 years ago. Two posts. Two posts. Two posts he made last decade (laughs) 
about abortion. In his posts, it looks like there are comments on a Facebook thread. Replies, yeah. Yeah, and in his posts, both times he said, I, abortion is wrong, I believe it is wrong. It was wrong when I paid for an abortion in 1989, and it's wrong now. Mm-hmm. So those are the bombshell comments. And you asked me this morning, you're like, wow, this is kind of early to be coming out in 2022 when the election is two years off. And I had an answer. Go ahead. This was not done by Democratic operatives. This was not done by Democratic candidates. And I don't have, you know, a source here. This is not the M.O. of the Democratic Party. These are revelations that come out usually around September, October, weeks before the election. This was done by Republicans. Republicans who are very concerned about Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson's candidacy in 2024. A lot of folks would like to see him knocked out early. We have talked extensively on the podcast about Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, that he is the presumed front runner in the race for governor in 2024 on the Republican side. Many think he is going to face Attorney General Josh Stein in that election. Do you think this sort of revelation, if you will, is going to be impactful in that Republican primary? I think it could be. It certainly can. I also see a path. I mean, obviously, the Republican base of voters considers themselves pro-life or anti-abortion. I grew up in an evangelical church, very much anti-abortion, very conservative on social issues. There's a culture among evangelicals, evangelical churches, evangelical voters, and really voters are a growing base in that Republican primary. Admitting your past or past mistakes and seeking redemption. I mean, anyone who has been to a good old-fashioned Pentecostal church on a Wednesday night when it's testimony night, everyone loves testimony night at church because you get to hear all the bad things that your fellow churchgoers have done before they converted to Christianity. I mean, it hears like a soap opera. You know, the fact that Lieutenant Governor Robinson, who was then a private citizen, made this post, I think a lot of evangelicals will look at it and say, yeah, he admitted that he did something in their eyes is wrong, and he's redeeming himself. The big question is, how does a Dale Falwell, Treasurer Dale Falwell, who's being rumored to run for governor, how does he use this as a wedge issue in a primary? I can't see this being a huge issue uh, in a general election, just the way evangelicals think about it. It'll be interesting over the next few days to see how Lieutenant Governor Robinson responds to the media. So this week we sat down with Senator Michael Lee from New Hanover County. He is a quiet man, but really thoughtful, kind, and thorough in his approach to politics. And I think that really comes through both in this interview and in everyday interactions with him. 
The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Senator Michael Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, and it's good to be here. To kick us off, tell us about your district. Where is your district? Why do you think your district is special? Uh, well, my district is is almost all of New Hanover County, and if you've ever been to New Hanover County, you, you probably know it's really special. Uh, <laughs> not just... Uh, because of the geography being at the coast um, and also being on the river, but just the people. Uh, We have just the best uh, community that comes together when we need to. We've we've had lots of issues and lots of winds and and lots of concerns, whether it's a hurricane or whether we have lots of winds when uh, uh, UNCW or (laughs) or Cape Fears basketball teams are doing really well. So... um, Lots of great stuff down there. Lots of great people. It's spring. It's getting warmer-ish outside. Folks are going to travel to your district for tourism, maybe. What is the secret gym or the place that you think people should visit in your district? Wow. (laughs) That's really hard. Um, I think they should stay for a a week or two so that they can see them all. (laughs) Great answer. (laughs) I'd have to say Brit's Donuts at Carolina Beach. Wow, that's a Brits is good. <laughs> yeah. With that cup of milk on the side. <laughs> oh my goodness. You know, there are so many places like that um, in New Hanover County that um, it's really, it's hard to go somewhere else and spend some time mm-hmm. um, because you don't have a lot of that, you know, what I would consider just really local, been there forever kind of thing um, that that the person that just comes down for a weekend or a week is really not going to know unless they know someone. Yeah. Although Brits is right there on yeah. the boardwalk. Yeah. So. And unfortunately, everyone knows about <laughs> Brits. Right. That line is long. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is that acai place that I told you yes. you had to go, and Brian was like, I don't want an acai bowl at, in Wrightsville. Surf Ferry? Mm-hmm. It's like, and I was like, it's the best one in North Carolina. And he ate it, and he's like, you're right. Best 1,500 calories I ate. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of good ones down there yeah. at Wrightsville Beach. Yeah. So. What is your work in New Hanover County? You understand you're an attorney. You, what kind of practice do you do? So I'm a commercial real estate lawyer. So um, you're very busy these days, right? <laughs> well, it, you know it's interesting. Uh, you know, so my practice is is not just in in North Carolina. Hmm. Um, we practice in probably twelve to fourteen different states at any given time with projects with different clients. So um, we, I mean, I've been working with lawyers in, in other states for. 10 years and I've never met them. I've just talked to them on the, on the telephone and, uh, we know the names of each other's kids and, um, you build relationships even though you've never really seen some folks before. Uh, but that's what I do. Are you a native from New Hanover County? I, I'm not. Um, so I was born in New York and my father, uh, is from Taiwan and my mom is from New York. So, um, my father was in the air Force. He, he, came to the United States to do a residency and plan on going back to Taiwan uh, because he's a physician. Uh, he met my mom and never left. Wow. So uh, he practiced in New York, and then he was in the Air Force for a period of time, and uh, we were stationed, or he was stationed, rather, in New York, then Florida, then back in New York. And we somehow, after he got out of the, the Air Force, ended up in Dunn, North Carolina. 
In Harnett County. It is Harnett County, <laughs> and it's exactly halfway between New York and Florida when we drove it, and we stopped at the Howard Johnson's and would eat there, never knowing I would live there. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he met a physician at a conference that, that talked him uh, into raising his four young children in a, a small southern town. So tell us about growing up in Dunn and then kind of how you managed to get to New Hanover County. You know, uh, in hindsight, it was great to grow up in a small southern town. Uh, but when you're in it, uh, it, it, it you always want to kind of get to Raleigh. Or back then, we would go to Fayetteville mm-hmm. uh, to Cross Creek Mall. But, uh, you know, it was a little different. You know, my father's from Taiwan. Yeah. Um, and my mom, obviously, is from New York. And, you know, when you go to a small southern town and it's a new doctor in town, you're you're on the front page of the paper. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, you know, that that was different. Um, that was different, but yeah. really enjoyed it. And then went to UNCW and transferred to Chapel Hill and realized the mistake I'd made leaving Wilmington. Uh, so, um, spent the rest of my time trying to get back and, and finally got back there. Um, probably, I guess it was 2000, my wife and I, and our, our now oldest child who was still a baby then. With what is essentially an interracial marriage, you're living in Dunn. Was that a issue back then? You know, that was in the, the, you know, mid to late seventies, early eighties. So, you know, that was a little different. I mean, you know, you don't, you don't see, uh, my dad's from Taiwan. Uh, so you don't see many Asian people in Dunn, North Carolina. You didn't at that time. And you certainly didn't see, um, an interracial marriage like that. So, um, People didn't know what to think of us at, you know, different points. Uh-huh. And it had to have shaped you in, in some ways. Well, you know, it give, it's all about um, perspective. And that's why it, it's so great um, meeting and talking with my different colleagues in the Senate, because as you get to know people, you get to learn their perspective. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes that enables you to communicate in a way that, um, that can build consensus. Mm-hmm. And so that gave me a lot of perspective, uh, as did many other things in my life growing mm-hmm. up. Uh, having four children gave me lots of perspective <laughs> <laughs> so, and patience and some other things. So tell us a little bit about how you decided to get into politics. What motivated you to do that? So um, when my oldest son, who's now 21, um, was going into kindergarten, I uh, realized that school had really not changed very much since probably when my mom was in school. And so I was really interested in getting involved in education because I had, you know, my oldest son and we had at that point um, three children Mm -hmm. and really wanted to make a difference. So I ran for the Board of Education and I lost. Um, And then realized in that process that, you know, a lot of things happen in Raleigh. Everything's pretty centralized in North Carolina. So it's like, I'm going to run for North Carolina Senate and uh, ran against Julia Bozeman in 2008 oh, yeah. and lost. Um, and so then then, uh, Senator, then Senator Bozeman decided she was going to retire. And I said, this is my chance. I'm really going to make a difference. Ran again, ran against uh, Tom Goolsby in a primary and, and I lost. Oh. And so my wife looked at me, she said, you know, you're really not good at this. <laughs> you're good at a lot of things, but you're really not good at this. Maybe you should take a break. Uh, so I did take a break, but, and, and continued public service on the board of transportation and, um, with the port authority and things like that. And then, uh, when Tom was ready to retire, he called me up and said, Hey, you know, I'd really, you, know, you should really give this a shot. So after a, a fun discussion with my wife, mm-hmm. um, we decided to, to give it another shot. 
Can you talk a little bit about your politics? And let me tee it up here. My family spends a lot of time at Carolina Beach, and we see your ads, and you talk about issues in the media, in your ads, in the way you're communicating to voters. It's unique in some ways as a Republican. You talk about race. You talk about sexism. You talk about the environment. Can you kind of give us an idea of who Senator Michael Lee is politically? You know, I I think I may have a different perspective. I think... um we agree on so many things across the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. I think there are a few things we don't agree on, and I think that's evidenced by, you know, y'all are in the General Assembly. You see how the Senate votes. We, mm-hmm. I would say 90 95% of the time, you know, there's bipartisan support for a lot of different issues. Mm-hmm. And when you have the time to really sit down and talk about it, um, you build consensus. Mm-hmm. And so I talk about, you know, those things um, that I know that there is consensus. Now, I, I, I get... You know, social media is one of those things that that creates hardships because we all are so busy in our lives, and sometimes all people have is a snapshot of a a social media post. And most people are good people, and they want to trust people, and so they think things are true sometimes. Um, So I kind of get beat up on both ends of the Mm -hmm. spectrum, Um, but I think it's important to have these discussions. You you can't you can't talk in an echo chamber, and when you have the opportunity to really talk about things, uh, I think that that's when good things happen. And mm-hmm. sometimes great things happen. Your county was featured in the last election. One of the national media outlets did a story about New Hanover County. It was like ground zero, right, of the the split uh, among the electorate. It, it, I mean, imagine you have to talk about galvanizing things instead of divisive things. It's a very diverse community 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 to community. You have a history of civil rights. You have a history of, of being a tourist community. You have a lot of transplants coming in. Uh, th- that must be challenging. Well, you know, the voters gave me uh, a leave of absence to, okay. they thought I was working so hard uh, in 2018. <laughs> um, and then that gives you a real opportunity to kind of gain some additional perspective. Okay. And really kind of look at some of those issues. And, and I think that, that in 2018, you know, I, I don't know when that uh, article came out, but I think that was very true. But I, in the context of so much was going on mm-hmm. and um, kind of going back to what I said earlier, a lot of folks just kind of got galvanized behind um, positions and parties and um, I think that changed over the two-year period between 18 and 20 in mm-hmm. a lot of respects, at least in, in where I'm from, in, in southeastern North Carolina, New Hanover County. But I think a lot of it had to do with just talking about the issues and getting mm-hmm. back to that. How would you describe your passions at the General Assembly? Um, you're known for being an education leader. What got you into that? Tell us a little bit more about what your passions are. You know, education is my passion, although... Um, you know, the things I didn't go into the legislature for, I've spent a lot of time on water quality, environment, and those kinds of things that are incredibly important. Mental health is incredibly important. It's something that I've um, been working on inside and outside the General Assembly. A lot of times, the, the most important things we do is that we lead in our community and we can bring people together in a meeting. It's not policy, it's not legislation, but getting people in a room to talk about the issues and resolve practical differences so that things work better for a community is is important but education as i mentioned i said it hadn't really changed much since um 
when I was in school and my mom was in school. But then when I really got involved and engaged, it really opened up my eyes to how it wasn't going to change um, as we move forward unless we did something different. Mm-hmm. You know, when I ran against Julia Bozeman in 2008, we were talking about the exact same issues when I was running again <laughs> in, in uh, 2018. We need to do so much. And, and it's, we've got to stop talking about it in the context of, of early childhood and K-12 and, and, and colleges and community colleges, universities. We've really got to talk about the education continuum. And, and it does begin at birth and, and, I guess, in a lot of instances um, before that, prenatal. But we've got to talk about it uh, not in the context of grades, um, grade levels, that is. Mm. Uh, we really need to work toward a system where you know, children have the best opportunity to succeed um, from birth to workforce, and we can only do that if we change the system. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that takes time. And I, again, I took my leave of absence, so I lost a little bit of time. <laughs> but uh, I'm really passionate about changing that and working toward it. You have spoken about this some at the General Assembly that you have a son that has special needs and that has informed you a lot about our educational system and where it is failing and where it needs to be challenged to do better. Yeah, my youngest son had uh, a lot of health issues or continues, I guess, to have a lot of health issues, but most of them were in his first, most of his surgeries, I guess, were in his first four years of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, created some real challenges for him, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, the system is not really created, even before you get into, um, you know, kindergarten, yeah. the system's really not created to identify help and support. Mm-hmm. And it's an area that has... In, in my opinion, not really been focused on. And it is not just in the context of the education, but it's in the context of, of life. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of children that kind of go through this, the education system in North Carolina, and they age out. You have to get out of school at a certain point, And then they fall off a cliff. Yeah. You know, the, there's Social Security there that supports them. The, these are individuals that can work and be productive. And and when they fall off that cliff and there's nothing for them to do, so this is just isn't even the, the before kindergarten or in the process, it's in the whole continuum to workforce. The, these are individuals that can be, lead very productive lives. And because there aren't opportunities or people don't understand um, and they fall off this cliff, they end up having you know a social safety net of sorts, but then nothing to do all day. And, and if any of us had nothing to do all day, not a purpose. Um, you're going to have concerns with mental health and other issues, and, and that's why there's such a co-occurrence between uh, adults with um, special needs and mental health uh, issues and concerns. And so we as a society can do so much to change that, and it's not even money. Mm-hmm. It, it's thinking about things differently. So what ages are your kids? Wow, 15 through 21. Wow. <laughs> Getting old. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, 15, 18, 20, and 21. So, having kids in that age range probably teaches you a lot about their view on politics today. What's one thing you've learned from your kids? Wow, there's so many things <laughs> I've learned from my kids. Uh, you know, uh, what my wife and I have done is we've never, t- we've always kind of kept our conversations not telling them what we think mm-hmm. we're always asking them what they think and so the most surprising thing to me sometimes is just 
how much they really think about things. Mm. Um, and I guess that shouldn't be surprising, but it is. And so we challenge them when they say something, we kind of challenge them with something back. And sometimes I'm saying something the opposite of what I actually believed it's just mm. to get you know, to the heart of, of where they are. And so it's been surprising to have some really fun discussions, mm -hmm. e even with, you know, my 15 year old who's had so many challenges. I talk to my kids. I have a daughter who's very politically astute. She's tuned in, but I love talking to my son because he hates politics. He'll say, Dad, you know, me and politics don't go together. But he does have this common sense perspective. I learn a lot. Like, what are you thinking of this? What are you thinking of that? And it's all over the place. That's my 18-year-old, so, <laughs> who just enlisted in the Navy oh, wow. yesterday. So, Congratulations. Um, you know, all kids are different. Yeah. So um, my wife and I, we've had kids in uh, public, traditional public school, year-round public school, private school, charter school. My one son went to the School of Science and Math. Um, so, I mean, we've, we've had kind of that broad spectrum, and, and we've been lucky in that we've been able to afford to make those changes. And so that's one of the things that I think every parent and every child should have that ability, which is why I think funding should follow students um, mm -hmm. so that they can find the best opportunity for, for, you know, those children to thrive. And, you know, some of the times I hear, well, you know, how that might impact the traditional public school system. But, you know, I, I think we need to focus on children first, mm -hmm. but I also don't think it's going to dramatically alter the traditional public school system. Most kids want to go to Hoggard or Laney in, in my district because of sports and, right. and social um, and, and other things. Um, but I think we just need to focus on, on kids and, and yeah. not so much institutions. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. In Raleigh, there are a lot of very entrenched interest groups that you have to deal with as you're legislating in very good intentioned associations, whether they're representing teachers or administrators or school boards or running the gamut, that's got to be a challenge as you're coming in and you're seeing where we need to update our schools, we need to be more reactive to or proactive with students that, that need our assistance. What is that like? Because as you talked about, you can believe in private, charter, public, but that gets goes through the messaging filter and the outcomes you know, well, you're anti-public education because you support this. Can you talk a little bit about how you deal with the entrenched education groups? Um, it's not that hard to me because I'm used to getting kind of, I mentioned earlier, you know, people kind of get <laughs> mad at me on all sides of the spectrum sometimes, which maybe means I'm doing something right. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when, when someone comes in and they're advocating, you know, they just say, here, I'm on behalf of so-and-so. I'm mm -hmm. here on behalf of this organization. And so for me, I mean, I hear everyone out and, and I ask questions, but the person that comes in to my office says, I, I'm, I'm advocating for my son or my daughter mm -hmm. or my community. That's different to me because at the end of the day, that's the, the group that I'm really trying to support. So, and, and everyone else is important in the process. But at the end of the day, it comes down to what is it in the best interest of the child. And, and so if you start from there, the rest of it is, is not that hard to me. Um, I've got pretty thick skin, mm. so there's very little that bothers me unless it's someone I know personally. Uh, and then I really want to have that interaction and dialogue to find, okay, maybe I've 
maybe I've had a misstep, maybe I misunderstood, maybe I didn't understand that perspective. And so it, it's not as hard as maybe you might think. I see. Sky and I have visited you in your office with some clients, and you have a very no-nonsense style of the way you conduct meetings. You get right to the point, and then you, you ask a lot of questions. Can you give us, our listeners, an idea of how you like to be lobbied? It's important to get as much information as you can about uh, issues that are coming before you because the decisions that you make uh, can be so so impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is that you want to avoid uh, unintended consequences and you want to make sure that you are identifying um, the intended consequences. And so the time is, is my nemesis and in my personal life, my professional life, my political life. And so I want to be able to be as efficient as possible to get as much information as I can within the shortest period of time from those who have done the research. And so when I meet with people who are advocating on an issue, I expect that they will have done that research. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes I'm, I'm, it's very helpful. And sometimes I realize that the person that is I'm meeting with really doesn't have a handle on, on the issues and the research and the evidence. And in those instances, that's when I have to try and figure it out on my own. Um, and even before I get into a meeting, I typically have already done some initial research because you, you don't know what you don't know. And so um, I usually try and do research before I get in there if it's an issue that I, that I know that, that I am interested in moving forward. All right. So we prefaced you about the magic wand question, and you responded... <laughs> <laughs> with what kind of wand is it <laughs> I will some are say- stronger than others <laughs> so it's up to you if you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in our politics today what would it be and so if you're talking about kind of uh, partisanship and, and what's going on within um, institutions in Raleigh I, I would say that if we could have a reset on the institutional distrust that mm-hmm. is out there, um, education, healthcare—you name it—but there's some uh, there's some institutional distrust that if we could reset, um, I think that would go a really long way because it would enable us to look at things with fresh eyes. And and I speak in particular with respect to education. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's from a from a partisanship perspective. If it was a policy type issue, I, I think that. And, and maybe it goes along uh, with that is, is really to look at education as an education system and not as, you know, early childhood, pre-K, K-12, um, university, college, community college. A corollary, I guess, to the, to the, to the institutional trust or, or breaking down some of those barriers, if there is a way that we all have more time um, so, that, so that, although I think in the Senate we do a pretty good job of, of working together in a bipartisan way, but having more time to get to know people a little better mm-hmm. uh, would really go a long way so we can learn what their perspective is. I think mm-hmm. that's what's great about this podcast. You, you get to know people. And, mm-hmm. um, I drive back and forth to Raleigh almost every day during session, um, and so you can, you know, you can really listen and, and hear people's perspective um, when you might have a little bit of time. Wait, you drive home every day? Uh, do you, you don't stay in town? 
So on, uh, <laughs> you just opened up a whole other question. I'm sorry. That was supposed to be the last question, the magic one, but wait. Uh, so when we're in session, I will spend the night Monday nights because we're in session, but then, um, typically I will drive back and forth because, uh, when I started in the general assembly, instead of my youngest being 15, my oldest was 15, 14 actually. And so it was important to me to, even if I didn't get home till eight, nine o'clock, um, it was important for me to be home uh, so that my children knew I was home, even if they were already asleep. And then as they got older, I could help with homework and, and things like that. And then I would get up early the next morning and, and drive up. And so, um, and then I would you know, try to make use of my time. And then as I got to um, in my second term, um, I started to get, you know, if it's in the summers, I would have my kids drive me up so I could work in the car. Um, and drive back so um, and then they would get an experience and and, uh, so I'm usually home almost every night that I can possibly be home that's really great follow-up it's exhausting (laughs) (laughs) you said sometimes you work at 2 a.m. you'd like to work in the car Uh, you get up early help your kids get home at 8 to 9 like when exactly do you schedule sleep yeah so I don't require as much sleep as, as some people. Okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, if I can get five hours, uh, five or six hours, wow, uh, that's great. And so um, things are easier. My kids are older now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is a little easier uh, to, to do things. Um, but when they were younger, it was, it was you know, that <laughs> I joke about the, about the two-year uh, leave of absence. But, uh, you know, that was because we didn't plan to – I didn't plan to run. I didn't know uh, Senator Goolsby was going to retire. So mm-hmm. I, you know, it, it all kind of happened pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and my kids, again, our kids, were, were still really young. So, you know, that was the priority. Senator Michael Lee, we appreciate everything you do for your district. We appreciate everything you do for the state. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. A few weeks ago, we had Senator Deanna Ballard on the podcast. Mm -hmm. She's his co-education chair on the Senate side. And they are very different in their personalities. They are different in their personalities, but their thought processes are similar, I think. Mm -hmm. Especially in the way they run meetings, Mm -hmm. right? If you're in their offices, you better have your facts and you better be quick. We really enjoyed getting to know him better. Interesting that he grew up in Dunn, so closer to Raleigh and then moved out to the coast. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, same. Tweet Tweet of of the week. week. As folks have their eyes on Washington this week, they are confirming a Supreme Court justice. And Wednesday was Senator Tom Tillis's turn to question her. And this was all over social media. And so the tweet of the week this week is from Now This News. It appears that it has about 50,000 views at this point, where Senator Tillis says, 
I'm not an attorney, but I do watch Law and Order from time to time. <laughs> very yeah. relatable. Yeah, very much so. Senator Till is, has a really good sense of humor. Uh, we saw it a lot when he was Speaker of the House. These hearings really are interesting. I remember the first kind of spectacle of a Supreme Court hearing was Clarence Thomas, now Justice Clarence Thomas, the hearings about Anita Hill. And it really was kind of all eyes were on these hearings. And it's interesting now, you know, we've interrupted daytime television to bring you the United States Supreme Court hearing of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson. And Scott, let me ask you this. These hearings are designed to get to the jurisprudence philosophy of a judge. As I've watched the news over the last couple days about this, it seems like there aren't a lot of legal questions being... I know there are some legal questions being asked, but... Yeah, I don't think you have to be an attorney to answer this. I think that (laughs) what you're trying to get at is what the purpose of this is. Yeah. And maybe back in the day that was the purpose, but at this point in society, the purpose is get your talking points in. You can you're on national TV. You can make a name for yourself. In recent history, you might think of Senator now Vice President Kamala Harris making a name for herself in hearings. And that seems to be more of the purpose of these sorts of hearings. And it kind of relates to the General Assembly. The House has televised floor sessions, and the Senate has said, you know, we really don't want to do that. And I think a lot of the concern is you're going to have some grandstanding. The speeches certainly have gotten longer over on the House side when the TVs are on. You have to wonder, should we have the television cameras in there? Because it really just feeds the politicians at, you know, putting up props and really communicating to their base. Are we really trying to get to Judge Jackson's jurisprudence? What are we trying to get to in politics? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. All right, so we're in the sweet 16 of the Do Politics Better NCGA Bracket Challenge. Wow, we had a great first round of games. We had, I believe, at least one upset we can talk about. Go ahead. Senator Todd Johnson (laughs) prevailed over Senator Danny Britt. I had some communications from Senator Johnson. I think he was worried about this first round matchup, but he came out on top and now he's facing Representative John Bell, who beat his friend, Senator Jim Perry, in that first round. Yeah, we had good matchups. It was a little bit different than like ranking people higher or lower. We just had head-to-heads the whole way through and some people won and some people lost and I don't want to name names, but yesterday there was someone in our office who was a little sad about Danny Britt losing. <laughs> I, well, I, did, I wasn't... Both, both senators are great guys. Wonderful, wonderful senators. I, I, as much as it was fun to see them go 
head to head. It was tough to see them lose, but it, it was also exciting and fun. I, I am a little down for Senator Britt. I thought, I thought he'd go further in the tournament. Maybe but, you could console him. But but Senator, <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing that right now. Senator Britt, sorry about that loss, but Senator Johnson is he's already ahead in the Sweet 16 against Representative Bell. By the time you hear this podcast, though, we will be to the Elite Eight. We will be voting through this weekend, and our final four will be announced probably on Monday. Yeah, I know you're sitting on the edge of your seats. (laughs) Final four, and then we're going to get it down to a championship. And by the time we get to the championship game of the NCAA men's basketball tournament, we will be facing off with Jeff Tiberi's bracket. Uh, we have also been paying attention to the men's basketball tournament. I mean, I, I, we're, we're not going to talk about Illinois. We're not. We're not. I told it, you before we started this, we weren't talking about Illinois, and then you came down here and started it? Yeah, I'm not talking about Illinois. Mm-hmm. The fact that they lost in the second round. We're we might have lost in the game, but you're about to lose in the parking lot, brother. <laughs> Let's talk about a team we can all agree on. Everyone is a St. Peter's Peacock fan, right? Yeah. I was telling you that I listened to a sports podcast and they interviewed the coach and they asked him, what do you say to pump up your players versus Kentucky? And he's like, if they need to be pumped up to play Kentucky, they have their own problems. My problem is that all my kids think that they should have been recruited by Kentucky. (laughs) (laughs) And like none of them were ranked players in high school, you know, it's just a nice story. These underdog stories, Senator Johnson, these underdog (laughs) stories are so compelling and you know I know it's not going to end well for them I know they're just riding this high and a week off is a week off and it'll be interesting to see how they match up against Purdue Friday night but we do still have Duke Carolina both made the sweet 16 so North Carolina teams still in it it's a fun week kind of take our minds off NC politics and enjoy some good basketball and just around the corner. (laughs) After a long day's work of fixing cars, you just kind of get your mind off of things. (laughs) So I'm wearing a mechanic shirt today. (laughs) Just, you know, I know you're probably wondering what Sky's taking a dig at me here. I'm wearing a mechanic shirt that the firefighters gave me and I proudly wear this once a week and Sky thinks it's ironic looking. It is just because, like, you are the least manly man that I know. And, like, we have these burnout light bulbs. (laughs) The door needs fixed. (laughs) But, yeah, you're a mechanic today. Yeah, I'm wearing a mechanic shirt. (laughs) Pretend firefighter, pretend mechanic. All right. Well, the show has digressed. (laughs) Long live the peacocks and uh, good luck to everyone who is competing in our brackets thanks for listening to us until we talk to you next week have some fun with our brackets have some fun watching the ncaa tournament and while you're doing that remember to do politics better